Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Maryland State Senator Will Smith. Will is the personification of service. He's not only a practicing attorney, a state senator leading efforts on parole, immigration, and education reform, but he's also active in the Navy Reserve as an intelligence officer, including a deployment to Afghanistan. He's the first in his family to go to college, the first African-American to represent Montgomery County in the legislature, and to chair the Judicial Proceedings Committee. He's doing some really good work and is able to tie policy to our shared values and our aspirations. Enjoy hearing from this incredible leader. Senator Will Smith, welcome to an honorable profession. It is great to be talking with you today. Can you talk about your experiences in the Navy and the work you did when you were deployed in Afghanistan? So I'm a reservist assigned to the Pentagon. I was in the midst of a legislative session when I got called up to deploy to Afghanistan. I essentially did the same job as another New Dealer and now the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate, actually served in the same basic unit space as he did as an intelligence officer. I was a branch chief for governance and the Afghan National Security, like their defense force, their army, essentially. And I reported directly to the, the commander of Afghan forces in Afghanistan. And that was a, just an invaluable experience to understand not only how military operations work, but also how fledgling governments overseas. I mean, literally, I was there for the only the fourth presidential election, Democratic presidential election in their history. And to see this fledgling Democratic experiment struggle through and to help the Afghans try to achieve success in the Democratic ex- experiment uh, was an invaluable exper- experience for me, not only in international relations, but in government. And it also, I think, when you serve overseas in the military, not only do you get to interact with folks from all lots of life and from all parts of our country, but it gives you a keen perspective of how things are going back in the United States, because you can kind of view the country from abroad. And you ask yourself constantly, are we living up to the ideals back home that we are uh, forward deployed protecting abroad? And the answer is, in so many respects, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. Obviously, we have so much to be proud of. Uh, we're the, the, the best place in the world to live. But, uh, you know, the struggle does continue. We have so much work to do, not only with respect to economic opportunity, educational opportunity. You know, we're very much enmeshed in police reform right now, but immigration reform. So there are a lot of things that I think national service or service in the military helps you. It gives you great perspective, not only in, in just like the foundational principles of government, but also kind of a status check of how we're doing back home. 
this is not a topic we often get to talk about on this podcast, but clearly you have an expertise. Do you have a thought about the changing U.S. policy towards Afghanistan and uh, based on your time there and any direction that, that you think the U.S. should go? I was a sophomore during 9-11, and that kind of inspired me to get into service. And then the, the experience briefing General Miller, who's still you know, in the commander of our forces there now as they go through this retrograde process. And I'll say this, the month that I left in 2019, I left in October, the first soldier arrived in Afghanistan that wasn't alive during 9-11, 2001. And it was the first, you know, the first time that, that was the first time that happened. And it just shows you that we've, you've been enmeshed in this war for, for two decades. And it was clearly time for us to extricate ourselves and for the Afghan government, for the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to take the reins and to move forward and govern in some sort of a power sharing agreement with the Taliban. That's what's, it, eventually what's going to have to happen. It is sad to see us leave in such haste. And you see that the provincial governments are falling. You see that the circle around Kabul is kind of tightening. Uh, we just left Bagram Air Force Base you know, a week ago, and already the Taliban have made significant advances toward Kabul. So it, is, it will be interesting and, and tragic to see what happens. I do think that it was time for us to leave. I do wish that it, we would have done so in a, a more prudent manner, but you know, such, such is, such is the, the will of the commander-in-chief, and, and the military has done an excellent job uh, executing on those orders. Thank you for that. It'll be interesting to see after that forever war sort of comes to an end, uh, what the what the ramifications are for that region and for our role in the world, frankly. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, being there sort of gave you a perspective on some of the issues here. And you've been hard at work on the issues here. Can you talk a little bit about your efforts around parole reform and what's both going on in Maryland and then how you see that maybe applying nationwide to many of the challenges we have in the criminal justice reform uh, area. Sure. So, um, for you know, Maryland is a relatively small state, but I think we punch above our weight in terms of influence and trend setting. They're a state of, a, you know, a little over 6 million people. And we're nested, you know, mid, in the mid-Atlantic, right outside of Washington, D.C. So I think what we do matters. And my first, so I'm the 50th chairman of our Judicial Proceedings Committee, and, and that's the oldest standing committee in the Maryland General Assembly. And it has jurisdiction over, among other things, the practice of law, parole reform, criminal justice, civil law, access to justice issues. So my first act as, as chairman of this committee was to arrange for a briefing with the Justice Policy Institute, and because they had recently published a report uh, that outlined some of the devastating disparities in our, in our criminal justice system. So Bottom line up front, the report found that African-Americans make up about 32% of our population, but more than 70% of our prison population is black, and that's double the national average. And that almost 80% of those people serving at least 10 years or more in prison are black in Maryland. And so we have the highest incarceration rate of black men aged 18 to 24 in the nation. A critical component of that is our, our parole reform process, our parole process. So um, we did. We took three significant steps forward this past legislative session. One was to deal with um, the juvenile life without parole issue. So today, or before we passed that bill, uh, a juvenile could be sentenced to spend the rest of their life in prison without the possibility of parole. That means that someone 14, 15, 16 years old could spend the rest of their life in jail without even the prospect of having a parole hearing, a status check, have you rehabilitated yourself 
Uh, can you be a positive contributor to society? Do we believe in, you know, the, the process of redemption in Maryland? And I think that the answer to that fundamental question was yes. We passed the bill, the governor vetoed it, and then we overrode that veto. So I was really proud of that work uh, that we did. Another thing is we took the governor out of, uh, out of the parole process. And we're only, Maryland is only one of you know, three states that has, uh, that grants the governor the sole authority to make the decision as to whether someone should leave parole or, or, or stay in prison, incarcerated. We're only one of three states. So as a somewhat of a our so-called progressive state, we still count ourselves among those three states. This year, we took the governor out of that process and, and left that work to the capable and able hands of the parole commission. Ten commissioners who are well-trained and steeped in these issues make the decision as to whether someone should be out on parole or not. And, uh, you know, that's another thing that we moved forward within Maryland after languishing for decades. And finally, we did something that we finally put into place a, an exoneree compensation framework for those wrongfully convicted people in Maryland. Sometimes folks who spent 20 years in prison, they didn't really have a mechanism to be compensated for the time that they spent behind bars wrongfully convicted. We put into, uh, into place working with the Innocence Project and we made that happen this year as well. So I'm really proud of those three advances we made in the Judicial Proceedings Committee in the Maryland Senate this year. As you mentioned, traditionally, Maryland is a, is a blue state, but you have a Republican governor. How bipartisan were these efforts and what did it take to sort of get these initiatives across the finish line legislatively? Good question. So, look, yeah, you're right. Maryland is a, considered to be a, a blue state, but in the last three gubernatorial contests, we've had two governors, two Republican governors. So uh, it shows you that you know, maybe we aren't as blue as, as, as we think we are. Uh, and out of our eight members of the congressional delegation, seven are, are Democrats, one is a Republican. So two of those issues were along strict partisan lines, and one was uh, bipartisan. The exoneree compensation, which is, I think, once you get the details and the mechanisms you know, sussed out. It's a pretty it's a non-controversial issue. Everyone believes that someone who's wrongfully convicted should be compensated. That was a bipartisan effort. The governor signed the bill. The governor out of parole issue, the depoliticizing governor uh, parole, and the Juvenile Restoration Act, the juvenile ending the practice of juvenile life without parole. Those were essentially on strict partisan lines. Only one Republican came with us, and that was uh, a senator by the name of Chris West from Baltimore County. He's a Republican, but somewhat of a moderate, and he came along with us. But the governor vetoed both of those bills, and we had to override them. And that just, I think, you kind of pinpointed an issue on so much, so much of the progressive issues and policies that we'd like to push forward in the legislature, uh, police reform among them, that we really don't have a partner in government. Uh, the governor has vetoed a lot of our critical measures with respect to you know, the parole reform, police reform, record-level investment in education, and that that shows us that, you know, we do need and, and would like to have a partner in government, someone that can work with us in the legislature to get to some of these desperately needed policies uh, through the legislature. And we're this is I think this is again, this is in a more acute conversation because we're in the midst of a of a, a gubernatorial primary where we've got seven candidates that have already announced on the Democratic side all of whom have progressive track records and who would be great partners with us in the legislature. I just hope that they can provide a succinct and a cogent message for the rest of the state uh, to get us over the finish line this time. What do you see as the party sort of you're on the ground pushing these progressive issues, but as you said, in a state that 
that has gone at least in the in the gubernatorial uh, space uh, Republican. What do you see as the sort of winning approach for the Democratic Party, both nationally and in your state, to, in order to get the majorities you need to get the initiatives that you want done done? I think you, you saw some of that success uh, with, with President Biden and, and uh, Vice President Harris. I think the same translates here. It's somewhat of, it was somewhat of a bellwether for what we've got going on in, in the state of Maryland. Now, by and large, when you go issue by issue and you explain it, uh, the, the folks in Maryland agree with us, the Democratic Party, on parole reform, education investment, transportation, infrastructure investment, police reform. If you explain those things, they tend to come with us. But you need someone with the ability to do that and with the track record of proof of having been able to, to, to deliver on those promises. And I think that's what you have at the national level and what, what ultimately translates well in Maryland uh, we're called, you know, we're the seventh state, we're the old line state, we're deep blue, but it's actually, you know, when you take on, you know, when you take another look at where we are, uh, a lot of folks call us uh, America in miniature, because we've got everything from Western Maryland, Allegheny County, all the way to the Eastern shore, where you've got uh, Talbot County and uh, Anne Arundel County. Uh, you've got Montgomery, you know, vibrant centers like Baltimore City and Montgomery and Prince George's County. So you've got a full mix of, of uh, uh, and diversity of, of citizens here. So I think, look, you're going to need someone that has a track record that's delivered, but that's someone that can kind of be the explainer in chief as well. Someone that can explain and clearly articulate where we want to have, uh, where we want to take our state. And because the issues, if you go issue by issue, we win on the issues. It's just the, um, the broad-based message that we've had trouble doing in, in the general election. So I want to talk about one of those issues that uh, is obviously challenging at the national level, but you're making some progress on the local level, and that's immigration reform. Um, can you talk about some of your efforts around that and both the sort of the substance of it and then the messaging of it, as you mentioned, and the way that you communicate it to the broader public in order to, to maintain broad support for your efforts? Yeah, so immigration has always been something that's important to me, not only because I, mean, I represent District 20, which is Silver Spring, Tacoma Park. Uh, people have called that the Berkeley of the East Coast. So it's a you know very progressive the most progressive part of a, a pretty progressive state. Uh, going back to the military experience, I remember um, coming back to the Chow Hall one evening, and you know they have TVs there. You can kind of get your news from CNN or MSNBC or um, whatever one of the major networks. And I remember you, you'll probably remember this. There was a, a, a story about a father and a daughter who had crossed the Rio Grande and, and they drowned. The daughter was Valeria. She was three years old. She was around her her dad's you know, her, on her dad's back, he tried to wade through and, and they both ended up perishing. And you start thinking about why, go back to the why, why was some, why would someone put their life at jeopardy and their daughter's life at jeopardy? They're so thirsty for the opportunity and so afraid of what was behind them that they would risk their lives to come here to contribute meaningfully. And you look at what the contributions of, of every wave of immigration in the United States that they've made to the United States and why we are literally the best, most well-educated, most innovative, greatest nation in the world, it's because of our immigration and our ability to absorb and learn from people that come here to contribute. And that really struck me when I was abroad. And so when come back and have the opportunity to work on some of these things, you, know, you have often talked about how the local government is really where the action is, or what John F. Kennedy was said, the vital center of action. Uh, or what you know, you, you you talk about Eric Lesser, a state senator from Massachusetts that left the administration, came back and contributed here. This is where you can make a, make a real impact. 
And so the immigration stuff, obviously, that's mainly within the purview of the federal government. But there are a couple things we can do on the state level. And one of them was to curtail our involvement in housing people here that were here on a civil ICE detainer. That's a, basically saying, look, you don't, you're undocumented, which is a civil infraction, not something that's jailable. It's not a jailable offense. And saying that we, were, we would not participate in housing those folks. So ICE essentially has a practice of housing folks that are here uh, undocumented, and, and they use local facilities to do that, local prisons and local jails to do that. We curtailed our, our, we ended that practice and said, look, we're never, we're not going to participate in that practice here in Maryland. And we also said, no, you're never going to build a private prison here in Maryland for those purposes. We also passed a piece of legislation that prevents ICE from going into our records, our motor, the DMV, our Department of Motor Vehicle Records for immigration purposes. About a decade ago, we made a little bit more than a decade ago, we made the promise to our undocumented population that, look, if you come in and you get a license and you can, so you can legally drive on our roads, you're going to be safer. We're going to be safer. It's going to be better for our economy. It's going to help you integrate. Um, it's a, ultimately a, 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 a wise policy choice. We made that choice and we made that promise to them. And then we turned around and we left the door open for immigration to go in and to find out, you know, identify people that had that class of license and round those folks up uh, for immigration deportation. And so those are two things that we can do at the state level that can really, I think, ultimately make for not only a more welcoming and a more enriching place in the state, but ultimately a safer place because people, you know, with, with who are undocumented feel more comfortable engaging and interfacing with law enforcement officers and with government agencies if they don't feel fear deportation. I know this is a very controversial issue, but I think one thing that is important to realize is that being here unlawfully is a civil violation. It's not a criminal offense, whereas the actual act of crossing over is criminal. Uh, the actual physical act of being here is not. And so you should never be arrested for that. And it's oftentimes used as a pretext for some other thing to be detained. So it's, it's just a very unfortunate practice that we have put an end to in Maryland, and I think and I hope will be a, a national model and a leader for that, an example for other states. It strikes me, Will, as you talk, that you have such a nuanced and also empathetic view of these policies that, that are often get so polarizing and general, and you're able to bring that. And it's clearly a result of your your parents' upbringing and your service. Do you have a sense as to how we can bring young people uh, into public service, you know, whether it's, whether it's through the military, through AmeriCorps, through politics, like what do we need to do to create more leaders like you? I think just showing folks that the, the benefits of the work, we're both attorneys and you know that we've got lots of friends that have gone off into the private sector and you know, made a lot of money and had rewarding careers in their chosen field. But there is literally no other profession in which everything you can do can be in furtherance of the public interest, and they actually pay you for it. Um, like literally everything you do from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed is, is advancing the well-being of your neighbors and your friends and your fellow citizens um, and your fellow residents. And so that, that it's, it's just such a rewarding uh, career path. Um, and I think that what we need to do, you, we need to have conversations like this that, that show, that shine a light on the sexiness of public service, because it really is a rewarding career. It's a fulfilling career and, and it makes a difference. 
And you can't say that about heart, you know, hard, there are hardly any other professions in which you can say that you made a difference today and that your work really did matter. And I think when you look back over the course of the years, no one will ever say, I wish I would have built another you know, 20 hours that, that year. I wish I would have built another hundred hours that year. Um, but they, they'll remember the, the, the stories of the people that you helped and the projects that you advanced that uh, got people to and from work easier and helped help them maintain a job and therefore put a roof over their head and put their child into good school. So I just think that we just need to continue having conversations like this uh, that show that, that this is such a rewarding career. We also need to provide incentives, frankly, uh, to compete with those more lucrative options. So, you know, tuition assistance, grants that, that help people have exciting new opportunities abroad and domestically. You know, we do need to put our back into public service and, and we do need to make it a competitive field for folks to, to get in, in, into because there are stark realities that folks do have financial needs and, and financial dreams that sometimes they can't accomplish if they go into a, a public service career. Yeah, I completely agree on on all those points. It is a, it's a unique way to, to get to serve but also live your life, but there needs to be that institutional support. Can I ask, sort of following up on that, you're the first African-American to represent Montgomery County in the state Senate in a time uh, when there are rightfully so, so many protests and questions about the system. Um, you're, you're working from within the system to make change. How do you speak uh, to young black students or activists uh, about your role and why you've chosen to work sort of inside the system instead of outside of it? Well, I think, yes, I mean, you can, there are several ways you can make an impact. You can, uh, you know, obviously you can be an activist. You can be someone that works in a think tank and provides policymakers with the guidance that you need. But again, the vital center of action is uh, from within the system. And you've got to be at the table to, to help guide those, those decisions and that, and kind of that, that path forward and that destiny. And I think that if you were to, I always use the vignette, I mean, of police reform. I mean, we, in Maryland here, you know, we, we passed the most comprehensive and consequential police reform ever in Maryland. I think that'll serve as a national model as we go forward. That doesn't mean that our work is done. It just means that we've, we should capture some of these lessons and, and apply them to the, to the challenges that we have before us. But I always, I, I use the police reform as an, as an example. I mean, I think of when you go look, look at what we did and you think of the moment that we're in right now and you think about, uh, you know, go all the way back to George Stinney, which is who is the, the youngest boy person with an actual birthday to be put to death in, a, in, in the electric chair. Young black boy, 14 years old. You go to the 1916 lynching of Jesse Washington. People think about that image of black men hanged from a tree and people having picnics and taking pictures and smiling and almost like a, a social gathering around it. It's a very troubling image. You think of Emmett Till, whose mother had the presence of mind to leave that. Uh, that coffin opened so that the world could see what happened, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then the murder of George Floyd. All of these images were captured by this, the media of the day, and they served as a catalyst for systemic and broad-based change because people who normally could walk about their lives willfully blind to the plight of their neighbor, their black and brown neighbor throughout society, could no longer afford to and could no, simply no longer ignore that plight anymore when those images rose up to the national and international psyche. And 
they we use that as a catalyst for change. And, and George Floyd, from George Stinney to George Floyd, you know, here in Maryland, we use that as a catalyst for change and to keep that conversation going. I think that's an important conversation for us to have as African-Americans, as African-American leaders and elected officials to have to younger folks that are coming up and may be interested in politics that you have to have that understanding of history um, and you are in a unique position. You can put yourself in a unique position to help and to pull on some levers that you wouldn't have on the outside to make that change. And I think the police reform package and that story, that through line from George Stinney to George Floyd, I think is exemplary of of the change and the history that we can make if you are within the system. And um, so, I mean, that, that's essentially, you know, what I've tried to, to tell folks when, I, when I've been talking to folks, mostly on Zoom these days, but more and more in person. But that's the type of thing I've been trying to tell people that are coming up and interested in politics. And I think, and I appreciate that. And I think in your policymaking and uh, your public statements, you've done a great job of tying educational investment to systemic reform and criminal justice, better criminal justice outcomes. Can you talk about some of your efforts to tie education and educational funding into, into your overall reform efforts? Sure. That, that goes back to our you know, partnership in government. This year, we passed something called the Kerwin Initiative, and that's basically the, the most uh, broad and uh, significant investment in our, edu- our public school education system in, in our state's history. And I'll kind of crib from another New Dealer, uh, our Senate President, Bill Ferguson. He always talks about the educational inequities, and I'll just rattle off some of the things that he, I, he talks about that I've, that I've kind of taken as, and adopted as part of my own. He talks about how look, one-fourth of Maryland high school students uh, don't attain a BA or an AA or a marketable skills-based credential within six years of graduating. And then you look at the, the job creation in Maryland, which is good, but two of those three jobs that are created require that BA, that AA, or that marketable skills-based credential. So if you look at what our economy looks like, again, I'll crib from an economist, Tom Goodwin, who is, who's been quoted by Fareed Zakaria and some other folks lately, it talks about the state of our economy. And if you look at the world's largest taxi company, for instance, uh, it's, it's Uber. They own no vehicles. If you look at the world's most popular media owner, uh, they actually create no content. That's Facebook. If you look at the most valuable retailer in the world, they have no inventory and it's Alibaba. And if you look at the largest accommodation providers, so hotels or accommodation provider, they own no real estate. That's Airbnb. And I say all of that or use all of that because it just shows you how much our economy is changing. We're a skills-based economy, but the skills are different than what you and I normally think of as skills. You need those credentials and that experience to get into the game within our economy and so we need to do a better job investing in education. And that's what the Kerwin initiative was all about here in Maryland. We overrode the governor's veto and it'll go, it'll start going into place next year. All of this is to say is that our economy continues to change more rapidly than any other time in our, you know, in our history. And if this next generation is not equipped to take advantage of that, then we know where they're going to end up. Uh, there's a higher likelihood that they'll interface with the criminal justice system, which is the subject matter that my committee deals with. And we see it. So, uh, I think that there's a direct nexus between that educational attainment, that credentials-based attainment, 
success in our economy and the criminal justice system. And if we can head that off early on by investing in education, public school education, uh, then we'll have better, not only economic and you know social outcomes, but we're going to have better outcomes within our, our criminal justice system as well. And for all the policy uh, nerds who uh, love this podcast, can you give us some details of the Corona Initiative and what that looks like, what that'll look like on the ground in Maryland? So on the ground in Maryland, in the next few years, you're going to see not only some record level investments in, in terms of salary for, for teachers and, and educational opportunities and benchmarks for them to you know, keep their game up and arm them with the latest and greatest skills and, and background. You're going to see investments in our, school, our public school facilities so that uh, our, our newest learners have the best facilities, the most up-to-date and state-of-the-art facilities to, to, to study and learn from. You're going to see investments in, uh, in adjustments in curriculum and availability of, of curriculum so that our students can not only that are excelling can, can continue to excel and have that, the, that rich curriculum available for them so that they can be competitive uh, as they apply for schools and for vocational programs moving forward. You're going to see a massive expansion of vocational programs and massive investments in vocational programs so that folks will be able to move into those fields as well. So this is it's essentially just a plussing up and a reforming and a refreshing of our, our, our educational system from the actual facilities to the curriculum uh, and to uh, attracting and retaining the best teachers we can uh, in the state of Maryland. So it's a, it's a complete massive overhaul of our system. Wow. Well, I think it's it could be a, it sounds like it could be a national model for transforming the educational system to the to meet the needs of today and the realities of the economy of today, giving people the skills they need to to, to get right into those jobs. I'm, I'm curious, just personally, you know, you have you're serving as a state senator, you're chairing an important committee. You're in, still uh, serving in the in the Navy Reserve. You have a law practice, and you have uh, a daughter and a dog who uh, who are who all require your attention. How do you manage your day to day priorities, your time to meet all those obligations? Well, I think we've got so in Maryland we have a ninety day uh, legislative session, so we're in session for from uh, January to April, and that during that time that takes up the lion's share of the time because we've got to get all the uh, the state's business done all the bills passed in that in that 90-day window. After that, you know, off of active duty for the Navy, I'm a reservist and I do one weekend a month. Uh, so I'll be, I drill at either the, the Pentagon or the Office of Naval Intelligence here in Maryland. And, and then otherwise, I'll, from, you know, from Monday to Friday, I work at a law practice uh, and that's the professional side. So, I, and that's a law practice in, in Washington, D.C. do employment discrimination and um, the, the most of my practice is with uh, security clearances, so national security stuff, helping people uh, work out their security clearance issues. Now, you mentioned my dog and my daughter, but don't forget my wife. Um, so, but it's essentially just, just keep it, I'll keep it, which, yeah, I will never forget that. Um, That's so a, a smart all, man. <laughs> yeah, but no, just keeping, I think just keeping it all balanced. It's like, you know, everyone, we've all got a lot on our plate, but I think just keeping balance and making time for family is is you know the only way you can make it through the schedule's parsed up i have a firm lucky i'm lucky enough to be part of a firm that gives me the three months off uh, the navy again is, is once a month and the legislatures for for three months and, and otherwise you know just it's a constant grind but i think honestly making the time for the fa- for your family is the thing that grounds you and, and gives you perspective so that's the the kind of the, the most important thing 
any thoughts on what's next? You're not one of those uh, seven candidates running for governor uh, right now, but um, do you have any uh, any ideas of of next steps or next offices you might be uh, you might be interested in? Yeah, you know, I really like. I, I love the state senate. It's a, it's a real honor to to. It's a just like a precious privilege to to represent District Twenty in, in the state senate. I will say though that if if the office of the attorney general ever came open, the, the current attorney general Brian Frost is a, is a friend and a mentor. So would never dream of challenging him. But if if and when he you know he decides to to, to, to pursue other options, I would I think that is a really a great uh, position. You can make a lot of difference. You've, it's the largest law firm in the state. You are responsible for everything from consumer protection, civil rights, some criminal stuff as well. It's it's a real great opportunity. I think it would be a good vision that you could really transform and change that office to, to benefit Marylanders. Environmental protection, you get to get your hands in almost every aspect of the policymaking kind of sphere here. So it would be a great position to, to make a lot of difference from. And if that ever came up, I, I think I'd take a hard look at that. Well, I appreciate that. I think it'd be a benefit not only to uh, the people of Maryland, but also uh, to the rest of the country to have you continue your tremendous leadership. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and really share your inspiring story of what a what a life dedicated to service looks like. And uh, we're all grateful to have you in the New Deal and look forward to, uh, to seeing you in person, hopefully sometime soon, the next New Deal event or, or before. Well, Ryan, thanks a lot. This has been a real privilege and uh, the feeling's mutual. Uh, really, really uh, happy and honored to be here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.